I'm not sure about you all, but it just seems like a non-traditional kind of Christmas day. It's supposed to be 56 degrees and raining uh, in Omaha, Nebraska on Christmas Eve, and Christmas Eve is on a Sunday, and we didn't have Sunday school today, and I'm all out of sorts. But we're going to manage. Uh, we are. But I thought what we would do today, we'll take a break in our ongoing study, our current study of Second Timothy, and we'll talk about Christmas, but we'll talk about Christmas from maybe a non-traditional kind of perspective, or should I say perspectives. So this feels kind of non-traditional this year, so we're going to do a non-traditional approach. We won't look at one text. Uh, we'll look at different texts, and we'll look at Christmas, the incarnation, the birth of Jesus, from some different angles, from some different perspectives, perspectives you might not expect. And so we'll look at five different perspectives of Christmas, all designed to help us better appreciate the incarnation, all designed to foster praise and worship through understanding. I think today we hopefully can all learn something about the greatness, the significance, the grandeur of the birth of Jesus Christ some 2,000 years ago, but we're going to learn from people we wouldn't normally think to learn from. Maybe we wouldn't even want to learn from some of them. So I have a list of five here, and we'll begin with number one, the non-traditional perspective on this non-traditional Christmas Eve, if you will. We'll learn about Jesus and his greatness and his birth from the perspective of the animals. Now, you did come to Omaha Bible Church today. I am Pat Abendroth. Um, Santa will not come out later. I, I promise. We're not doing, we're not, I've not lost my mind. Um, and I do think that one year R.C. Sproul preached on Christmas from the perspective of a donkey or something like that. So, um, and if R.C. can do it, I guess I, it's license. Um, the perspective of the animals. What were the animals thinking? Well, I imagine they weren't thinking much um, because they're animals. They're not made in God's image, but they're in the stable where there was no room for them in the inn. Luke chapter 2, verse 7, she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger in an animal food trough because there was no room for them at the inn. We don't know what animals were there. Some early extra-biblical resources do tell us that there were uh, ox and donkey there. Um, we know from the song, and songs are always right, that there were cattle lowing. Uh, there would have been first-century Middle East kinds of animals there. For them, they're kind of barnyard animals. That's not really the point. Metaphorically speaking is what I want to get at. When it comes to creation, what was creation thinking? I'm just using the animals. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And we actually know from Romans chapter 8, and I want to push you to think in a more grand way about the incarnation. In Romans chapter 8, we learn what those animals were thinking. We learn what all of creation was thinking, metaphorically speaking. And they were thinking... Praise be to God. Romans chapter 8, if you would look at it with me, so that we might have a grander, a greater, a more significant view of the coming of Jesus, which is going to launch all of the things that he does. Praise be to God because the animal kingdom has been plagued with disease and death since the fall, not to mention all of the rest of creation. Creation has been 
broken, if you will, since the fall and has been waiting for a redeemer. And Jesus is the one who is going to make all things right. And when he came, again, metaphorically speaking, the animals would have been praising God. How about Romans chapter 8, verse 18? For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. A certain confidence is the idea in the future based upon past actions. That's what Christian hope is. In hope, in certainty regarding the future, and that's because of what Christ has done, starting with the incarnation, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning... We know that it hasn't been because we don't hear the creation groaning, but metaphorically speaking, he's capturing the right idea. All of creation, including the animal kingdom, has been longing, waiting to no longer face disease, death, and despair. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So in Romans 8, you've got, you, you, you have the beginning of, if you will, the, the work of Christ here on earth and, and then looking forward to the certain hope that is coming so there's still the groaning, still the longing, but it's tied to certainty in the future because of what Jesus did starting with the incarnation. So let's have a bigger perspective. Jesus came to earth to do a lot of things, but most certainly he came to earth to secure, to make certain that one day all things would be made new and there would no longer be any corruption, any perversion, no longer any injustice, no longer any death, no longer any suffering. Read how it all ends in the book of Revelation, but it's tied to his holistic work beginning when he was born in Bethlehem. This is why we have in Isaiah chapter 11, the the animal kingdom getting along with one another, if you will, and the wolf dwelling with the lamb and the leopard lying down with the young goat and all of that kind of imagery because there's no longer any conflict. And it's tied to Jesus, the great king, the great Messiah who will come and he will make everything right again. It's absolutely amazing. It's an absolutely amazing reality that should help us think rightly about the present so that we can face the hard things so it's because we're thinking rightly about the future. And in so many ways, the future is certain because of what's already happened in the past. We'd better do the next one lest we are here for a long time. Let's move to another non-traditional perspective. So animal kingdom, really, we're just talking about all of the created order, finding satisfaction and hope and confidence in the coming of Jesus. Number two, another perspective would be the perspective of Herod. The perspective of Herod. Now, I hope none of you sent Christmas cards this year with Herod's face on them. I, I hope we're not trying to get in the, the, you know, the, the old Herod spirit. But Herod is called Herod the Great for a reason. And 
Herod being great, and he's a big part of the birth narrative and the incarnation, his greatness helps us to understand the utter and absolute ultimate greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. It most certainly does. How about if we just look at some of the narrative when it comes to this matter of Herod and the Incarnation. Herod and the Incarnation, Matthew chapter 2, if you would like to look there with me, I'll read from some sections of Matthew chapter 2. Herod is the one who's ruling under Caesar in the Middle East when Jesus is born. He ruled from 30, uh, or during that time when he's there. Herod has been called a one of my one of my favorite extra biblical words. He's not just an egomaniac; he's a megalomaniac, right? He, he's a maniac on steroids, self-centered. If you ever go travel in the Middle East, you you realize Herod is great because the things that he built and the things that he did because he thinks he's great, and indeed he did great things. He considered himself king of the Jews. He's the ultimate king, at least under Caesar, at least on his own turf, he's the ultimate king. And I think it's good and appropriate for us to see him for who he is because he not only did great things and saw himself as great, he was an oppressor of the people of God. And when you think in terms of messianic figures and you think in terms of Messiah, remember, Messiah means king. It means anointed king, special king. And the Bible's filled with messiahs. It would be appropriate to say he is a a messiah figure. And messiahs are supposed to take care of their people, protect their people, provide for their people, uh, fight off their enemy, the the enemies of their people, um, not manipulate or take advantage of their people. But we know even the best of kings, Herod wasn't one of them, but even the best of kings have fallen short. So to see him in his greatness oppose Jesus because he's threatened and to have Jesus' incarnation, his birth be unstoppable even by a great person like Herod is a good perspective to have. Matthew chapter 2 verse 1 says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, killed his wife, killed at least two of his kids because he's insecure and threatened, but he sees himself as the great king. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Then Herod the king heard this. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. We probably should come back to that idea. It wasn't just him. It was broad and significant. Then if we drop down to verse 4, And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah, where the King, where the Christ was to be born. He finds out then in verse 7, when Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And then verse 8, make sure you see this. And he sent to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I may come and worship him. Then verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. And based upon the things that Herod has accomplished, he's probably pretty good at making sure all the baby boys are killed. 
And praise be to God. The incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, for reasons we'll talk about later, is unstoppable. It is certain. It is absolute. Could not be stopped. Even by one of the greatest people on planet earth at the time. So what could we learn from Herod? Well, I mainly want to learn that Jesus is greater than the great king. That he's the king of the Jews, not Herod. I want to learn that. I want you to learn that. But maybe we could also learn from Herod, given the fact that the people were also with him, generally speaking, by and large. Let's learn that apart from God's unique, sovereign grace, breaking into our hard hearts, we would be opposed to Jesus too. It's important that we would know that. Even when Jesus is found innocent, what do the people say at the end of Matthew? They say, crucify him. I'm, I, I want us to be amazed at God's amazing grace. If you're a Christian here today, the only reason you're trusting in Christ and not wanting him to be killed by Herod, if we're honest, given what he said and what he did, we would sound a lot like Herod or the people who were united together with Herod. I realize that's a big ask because we all think so that we're such good people. But the Bible does say we're dead in trespasses and sins. That we're not morally neutral. We're not morally good people. I think it's a great lesson to learn from Herod that I'm a Christian today based upon nothing good inside of me, but because God has supernaturally, as Ephesians 2 says, caused me to be born a second time. Absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. I want to worship Jesus. I put my trust and confidence in Jesus because God has worked in my heart first. It's amazing. Well, let's move on to another perspective that might be different, and that would be, before it gets better, it's going to get worse, by the way. (laughs) How about if we look at Christmas, the incarnation, the birth of Jesus from the perspective of Satan? I promise this point will end positively, but it won't start positively. We're we're speculating here. How do you think Satan felt when Jesus was born in Bethlehem? Well, we could go on and on, right? We could, we could, we could write blog posts about it and uh, (laughs) all kinds of things. Bear with me in speculating. I think at least in a certain sense, he was pretty excited. He, he, he probably was pretty excited with the first Christmas. Why would Satan be pretty excited with the first Christmas? Well, based upon what has happened, right? When, when, when he is the tempter with the first Adam, he's successful, right? In the garden, and he takes on the form of the serpent, and he tests the first Adam, and Adam listens to him. What should Adam have done? Adam should have driven him out. Based upon other texts, actually, I'll suggest to you, and I'll get there in a minute, Adam should have stomped on the serpent's head. That's what Adam should have done, but instead he listens. 
And he listens and he takes it to heart and he disobeys and he leads the whole human race into a state of condemnation, right? Romans chapter 5. So if history tells Satan anything, and I don't know what Satan actually does know and doesn't know, in some ways I think he has better theology than us, based upon James. In other senses, I think he's a deceiver who's deceived. Um, Can he even read the Bible? But anyway, I digress. (laughs) Maybe this will go well. But in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus is tempted... Tempted by the devil, Matthew 4, 1 to 10. I won't take the time to read it other than to say when Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and then it goes on to, to highlight the temptations. Then in Matthew chapter 4, verse 10, it says, Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. I would like to remind you that Jesus was born for that to happen. Jesus was born for that to happen. He was born for all of the things he did to happen, but I'm just highlighting that right now. Then what happens later? Peter tries to get Jesus to not go to the cross, and he says, get behind me, Satan. It's satanic trying to get him. He, Satan doesn't want him to be born, and so he's having the, the innocent slaughtered. And then he is born, so he's going to tempt him. And then what? He's going to try to keep him from going to the cross. And then he possesses Judas, the disciple of all people. Satanic, 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 trying to get Jesus to do what he came here to do. I just want to encourage you by the fact that Jesus is successful. The perspective of Satan might have been, I'm going to stop him and I'm going to be victorious, but he's not. And I want you to know as Christians, I want you to know as those who came to Omaha Bible Church today, that Jesus is the true and better Adam. He's the second Adam, or he's called the last Adam in 1 Corinthians 15. And he overcomes the temptation. He is born. He overcomes the temptation. He proves himself to be who he claimed to be. He fulfills the promise of Genesis 3.15 and defeats Satan. He is crushed when Jesus' work is finished. So we can see Satan wanting to stop it, but when we actually read our other text, learning what Jesus accomplished, oh yes, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, tempted as we are, yet without sin. Genesis 3.15, he does that and fulfills that. 1 John 3.8 says, the reason the Son of God appeared. Oh, see, it's a Christmas text. Not just the birth, but the reason, the reason he came here. There are other reasons, but the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And he does that very thing. Satan's perspective might have been somewhat optimistic at the beginning, and let's see it for what it is. But guess what? He he conquers him. And then, so much so, one of my recent favorite texts of the, of the Bible. Maybe because I hadn't seen it for so many years. Because of what Jesus has accomplished in coming here, being born, living a perfect life of obedience, dying a sinner's death though he never sinned, being raised from the dead victorious, ascending as our great high priest because of his perfect work on our behalf. But let's highlight, because he conquered the works of the devil and the devil himself, we are assured victory. 
Victory for us is certain. I love this imagery that the Apostle Paul uses, looking forward to the future, talking to Christians like us who suffer, Christians like us who struggle. But he addresses Christians like us who are united to Christ by faith. And Christ's work in conquering Satan is complete. So he says this, Romans 16.20, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I love that. How can he say that? Because of what he's already done through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in reality, Jesus, the images, did stomp on the serpent's head and he killed him. He defeated him. Most certainly he did. And so as we look forward to the the consummation, right? Jesus is the king and his kingdom has been inaugurated with his coming. And and we long for the consummation at his return. And as we long for that, just know that one, one day soon, smashed under your feet. And you know what? The reality, what he's getting at, it's already done. It's already certain. We're just looking to step into the reality, if you will and enjoy it ourselves. Jesus was born to do many things, but he was born to destroy the works of the devil, who is a liar, who's a deceiver, who plagues our experiences in the here and now, but most certainly it's already a done deal. Let's move on to another one, another perspective. Okay, we're going to we're going to get positive here. You ready for that? Hope you are. Another perspective, we're doing 5 of these, we've done 3 of them. Another Non-traditional perspective would be the perspective of the angels. And the perspective of the angels is a lot easier to see. Maybe this one would have been more predictable because the angels, what do they do? Well, the angels praise God. They, they praise God mightily. They praise God in an extraordinary kind of way. For example, in Luke chapter 2, verse 8, it says, In the same region... There were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night and an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. How about this in verse 10 of Luke 2? And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news, gospel news of great joy that will be for all the people. So they're all about it. For unto us, for excuse me, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Luke 2.13, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts. Heavenly, uh, the host word we don't use in English, for it's armies. They're, they're powerful, they're great, they're grand. It's like this, this massive military campaign of heaven, of, he, of the heavenly host praising God, saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So it's this full throttle, holding nothing back, Jesus is going to be born. He's going to be born and he's going to be the savior. And so we, even though we're not human beings, we know that this is good and we know that this is God's plan and purpose. And so they praise. That's worth imitating, right? These, these are the holy angels. 
You say, that, that's, the, that's the right tenor. That's the right tone. That's the right stance. That's the right, the right posture. That's the right demeanor. Praise God, because salvation has come. The angels know they're doing the right thing. And we know that it was an angel who appeared in Matthew chapter 1 and who then said, as here at Omaha Bible Church, everyone knows the verse because I'm a broken record. Why did Jesus come and why should you name him Jesus? Please, thank you. He will save his people from their sins. The angels know why he's come. He's come to be the Savior so that people can be saved from their sins. That's why his name is Jesus. God saves. And he's come to save his people from their sins. Before we move on to the last one, let's keep thinking about angels for a minute. Just think with me a little bit longer because this is rather intriguing. So, so they know that he's come to be born and he's come to be born and named Jesus because he's going to be the rescuer, the deliverer, the ultimate king, not a corrupt king, not a perverse king, but he will save his people from their sins is what he will do from their violations against God's law and commandments. That's what it, they, they know that. But if we can learn another thing from angels... I think we should learn that salvation of sinners is so extraordinary and it is so magnificent and profound that it seems that the angels can't quite get their minds around it. And lots of you know where I'm already going in my mind and that would be to First Peter. In First Peter it says in chapter 1, Verse 12 talks about preaching the good news, the gospel news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then it ends with that rather, in a sense, maybe puzzling sounding statement in verse 12 of First Peter 1. Things into which angels long to look. The image is that they're, they're staring. One resource says, to stoop over to look, implying willingness to exert inconvenience of oneself to obtain a better perspective. And even the grammar is, they just keep looking. They just keep looking, pondering. I think the idea is it's a bit baffling to their minds. In a good and extraordinary kind of way. But it is still baffling to the mind and I hope it's baffling to your mind. Let's learn from the angels. The fact that God, who is righteous, He has a perfect standard. He will not compromise. He doesn't take bribes like others might. He's not an unjust judge. And his law says the wages of sin is death. The soul that sins will die. We find it all over the place, stated in different ways. And yet he pardons sinners. Yet he forgives sins. Yet he grants eternal life freely to those who are sinners. Who, what? That's just not right. 
at least on the face of it. Does not compute, does not compute, does not compute. What? What? But God, the Bible teaches, is the just. He doesn't compromise his standards. And the justifier, the one who declares righteous, declares perfect, perfectly obedient. Those who are not perfectly obedient, I'm drawing on Romans 1 to 5 and 2 Corinthians. What? How can he be just and the justifier of sinners and give us eternal life? The answer is the one who trusts in Jesus, the one who believes in Jesus. Why? Because he's the substitute. Because he's the one who stands in our place and perfectly obeys, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. He makes perfect atonement. He's raised for our new life. He ascends as our mediator and advocate. It even says, if you do sin, just remember you have an advocate. It's an advocate in heaven. This is First John chapter 2. Jesus Christ, the perfectly obedient one. He's my substitute. It says Jesus Christ, the righteous, but that's the idea. Friends, it doesn't get any better. In that sense, I would invite you to be like the angels. And at first, at least, have a hard time getting your mind around how, how God could do this. But then find it resolved in even the logic of the Old and New Testament regarding substitution. You go, oh, this is amazing. This is too good to be true if it weren't true. It's the most important thing in the whole world. It's awesome. Praise be to God. How about glory to God in the highest? He came to save his people from their sins. And there was no other way for it to happen. I had no intention ever in my whole life of being a pastor. I used to go to church on Christmas Eve. And I would think, I would never want to be a pastor. They have to learn so much. I would never want to be a pastor. They have to memorize all of those things that they talk about. I would never want to be a pastor because they, well, they had to wear an interesting outfit. But I, I digress. Last thing in the whole world I would ever want to be as a pastor. But then all of a sudden, and for that matter, even a Christian of any kind of commitment. And, and then this, then this invades your thinking and your life. And, and, and all of a sudden it, it makes sense. And you say, this is the most amazing thing I've ever heard in my whole life. I can't wait to tell people about this, pastor or not a pastor. I'm just so thankful that I can sleep well tonight knowing that my sins have been forgiven and it's not some kind of trick that, that I don't have faith in faith. It's awesome. What a perspective that the angels have here that I think we could probably learn from. Let's do the fifth one, the final perspective we'll talk about this morning. And it is the triune perspective. The triune perspective. Meaning God's perspective, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit's perspective of the incarnation. Because there is a perspective. It's a perspective that reaches way, 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 way back into eternity. Before the foundation of the world. We've been studying 2 Timothy, so I'll just take a text from 2 Timothy that talks about this. In 2 Timothy 1, it talks about this very reality that long before the incarnation, before 
creation, before time begins as we would know it, there was a perfect plan. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit agreeing, making a pact, committing, covenanting that Jesus would come into this world, that He would live a perfect life of obedience, that He would die a sinner's death though He never sinned, that He would be raised from the dead, that He would ascend as the champion mediator for His people. All of this happened by divine design via the, as theologians would say, the intra-Trinitarian pact. Christmas happens. Why? Because of divine decree. That's why it happens. It's amazing. Second Timothy chapter one, just one text since it's on our minds. Second Timothy one nine, who saved us. God, God saves us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, But here's why. But because of his own purpose. He's talking about the ultimate purpose. He's talking about the ultimate decree, the ultimate plan for all of humanity. Because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. Notice the wording. Before the ages began. So he, he gave this to us. In Christ Jesus before the ages began? How how could that be? Well, it can be for reasons we just talked about. This is the plan. This is the decree. This is how it's all going to go down. Christmas isn't an afterthought. The incarnation isn't an afterthought. It's not a plan B. It's the ultimate plan for all things. No wonder the angels are saying glory to God in the highest. Before the ages began, verse 10 then says, and which now has been manifested through the appearing. See, it's a Christmas text. Through the appearing, through the coming, starting with his conception, through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The incarnation originates in the eternal decree. Christmas is way better than you ever thought or than I ever thought. All according the plan. So I would invite you in response to each of these five, but in particular this last one, to respond the right way to the intra-Trinitarian plan and purpose of God. And we know what the right way is because it's modeled for us in Scripture in Ephesians chapter 1. To the praise of His glorious grace. It's no wonder to the praise of His glorious grace, Jesus came and did everything necessary so that we might have eternal life and hope, not an I hope so kind of hope, but a future certainty because of a past action that's already been completed. To the praise of His glorious grace is indeed the right response. It's no wonder, as I like to say so often around here, that the Apostle Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and it's all in Him and it's all according to His perfect decree. Non-traditional perspectives that I hope help compel us and move us to realize that the birth of Jesus 
is astonishing and should cause us to praise God for it. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for an opportunity that we've had to come together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We come as sinners needing forgiveness and reconciliation, and we know that we have it through the work of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our champion Savior, and we are so thankful for him. We praise you for what he's done for us. Give us opportunities to speak truly and appropriately about him, even as we would gather with our families and experience our own traditions. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.